0: just want to thank those of you and welcome those of you that are maybe new with us today. My name is Jim Jackson. I'm not the teaching pastor. Uh, Pastor Marty is on vacation, and so I get the privilege of being with you today, and it's a great honor. If you would, take your Bible in the Old Testament and turn to Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42, verse 3, kind of a verse that maybe you've read before or Maybe you uh, haven't heard before, or uh, what does it mean, and I hope that you'll find that. I just want to read that to you. Again, Isaiah 42, 3. And so we're going to be using our Bible today, and not going to have any of them up on the uh, screens, and so if you do happen, if I get talking too fast, uh, there's the references in your notes. You can find where we're at. So Isaiah 42, verse 3 says this, Talking about the Messiah, a bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning, or some of your translations will say smoldering wick, he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. So these two things, maybe you don't think of them much. Here is a reed, maybe you've been at a lake or a marsh or by a river And here would be, some of y'all know these as cattails, but it's just a reed. It's a hollow little tube. Uh, One of the things they were used for is uh, maybe a shepherd would take and break them off and maybe take a drill, a few little holes in it with his knife and have a little flute to like play to his sheep. And yet, because it is such a delicate thing that if it got bruised, it would just be discarded. In other words, it was expendable. It was probably one of the most useless, I mean, value, had no value, so we could use it when it was used up, just throw it away. But then the other image is this, and that is a smoldering wick. And so back in the day, you would have a little bowl full of olive oil, And you would have a little wick. It might be some flask that you would take and twist up as tight as you could. And it would soak up that oil. You could light that on fire and it would burn for, honestly, just a little while. And then all of a sudden, when the wick got down into the oil, it would just kind of distinguish itself in a little puff of smoke. And there was barely anything left. And you would just pull that out and flick it away. And you would just go find another. In fact, here's just two images of something that is expendable. It's like useless. As long as it's being used, it's OK. But if it gets damaged in any way, if it gets hurt, bruised anyway, just kind of throw it away. Just listen to some of these stories throughout the New Testament of our Lord when it came to people that some people might look and see that and consider them to be just bruised reeds or faintly burning wicks just through the Gospels. You will remember one day Jesus was teaching in a house and some friends were bringing a man who was very crippled. And they couldn't get in, and so what did they do? They went to the rooftop, started digging a hole through And lowered their friend in front of Jesus. And for most people, they would be like, well, how dare you to interrupt our teaching time to do such a a thing, to disrupt things. And yet they were bringing their bruised reed, their faintly burning brother or friend. And here Jesus takes and heals him. Not only heals him, he comes to salvation A man with a withered hand one day is in a synagogue. And just think about if you took that story further, withered hand means he couldn't support himself. Or if he had a family, he couldn't support anybody else. And for Pharisees and religious people, they would look on and they would say, well, that's a discard. That person is of no value because they can't contribute to themselves or they can't contribute to anybody else. They're just a bruised reed. And yet they would throw that person away or say, get that person out of the way. And yet Jesus, on the Sabbath of all times, would heal him so that he could then provide for not only himself, for his family. And again, a bruised reed. Someone else would disregard Jesus, would take the time. Jesus' disciples, they pull up to the shore where a demon-possessed man is there in torment. No one has been able to help him at all. For most people, they looked in disgust. They would no way consider him to be someone that could be rescued. He, he lives among the tombs. He is naked because he strips his clothes off all the time. He, he can't even shackle him because he could break those apart. And at night, you'd hear him wailing At night, and people in the town would hear this. And whenever they did see him, he would be cutting himself, trying to find some kind of a relief. And for most people, this would be a bruised reed. A faintly, if not smoldering, wick of just expendable. And yet, Jesus, what does he do? He heals the man. And the man begs for him to be able to follow Jesus. And what does Jesus say? No, go back home. Go back home and tell of what the Lord has done for you. A religious leader one day comes to Jesus in humility because for a religious leader to approach Jesus would take humility. And he comes and he says, My little girl is dying, would you please come? And he begins to go. And on the way, a faintly smoldering wick of a woman who for years has suffered at a blood disorder And while he's on the way, she touches the hem of his garment and is healed. And it seems like he's distracted or he's been detoured. And yet, Jesus, no way, takes time with that bruised reed and continues on to the little girl and heals her, brings her back from the dead. A man is born blind. And for a blind man, he would be useless in the eyes of most people. He would be expendable. And yet, what does Jesus do? In fact, they even asked, was it his fault or his parents' fault that he was born blind? Jesus said, none of those. He was born this way so that God could be glorified in this, and he heals the man, and he has sight. An outcast Samaritan woman who would go to the well when no one else would be there because she was discarded by everybody, and yet Jesus would meet her there, And where everybody else would just see as like puffed out, disregard, useless. He spends time. She comes to know him. If you would, take a hard right from Isaiah and go to probably one of my favorite little stories. It's only two verses in Mark chapter 1 if you would. Over in the New Testament, that's where we'll be spending the remainder of our time. In Mark chapter 1, in just two little verses, you hear this story. Hey, I have nothing against devices, but you can't hear the pages turn on your phone. That's really cool. I'm sure there's an app for that, but don't be looking for it right now. All right. Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 40. And a leper came to him. Already, what an incredible violation. A leper had to keep his distance. In fact, lepers had to stay in their leper colony. They had to stay away from people at least 150 feet. And then they had to call out unclean so that people could keep their distance. And yet this leper, who knows his story for maybe years He's been separated, maybe he has a family. He's separated from friends. He can't embrace his children if he has any children. He can't hug his wife if he has a wife. Maybe they have gone. Maybe they've discarded him. And in his agony, a leper takes a chance and he comes to him and he is begging him. In fact, it's in the perfect tense. It means he is continually bowing at his feet, he's continually begging Jesus, if you will, you can make me clean. If you will, you can make me clean. And you can imagine while he's doing that, other people, maybe with sticks and rocks, are trying to get him to get away from Jesus. People are like astonished that he would come and interrupt Jesus where he is so absolutely unclean, and yet he continues. He has nothing to lose. He's already lost everything. He has nothing to lose, and he's begging Jesus. And 41, Jesus is moved with compassion. You know what compassion means? Compassion means you're hurt in my heart. Jesus is moved. And then Jesus does the unthinkable. He stretches out his hand and he touches him. And he says to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. A bruised reed, a smoldering wick that was expendable in the eyes of most people especially in the religious people's eyes. Yet Jesus was moved and touches him, which according to Leviticus meant now you're infected with it as well. You're just as unclean as the leper. And yet, mind you, probably the touch might have meant more at the very beginning than actual healing. because How long has it been since someone has actually touched We embraced a man suffering in such a thing. Listen, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 and 18. Therefore, he was made to be like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and a faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. And what I want to call to your attention there is when it says at the very end, He is able to help. It is the word He runs to the aid of. Jesus, because of who He is, He runs to the aid of those who are being tempted. In other words, He runs to the aid of bruised reeds and smoldering wick. And mind you, before we go any further, you realize that this room is full of bruised reeds and smoldering wicks at one degree or another because of our sin, because how the sin has affected the world and maybe even because of the sin of others towards us, all of us at some place, some point, some degree, are bruised reeds and smoldering wicks. Back in Hebrews chapter 4, listen to this. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect... Has been tempted, as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace. In other words, maybe in your if you have an amplified or uh, another Bible, it would read like this: Let us be able to come and speak freely in front of a throne that is characterized by grace. You see, for people back then, when they thought of a throne, they thought of a dictatorship. And you couldn't come at any time unless you were summoned. Even Queen Esther could not even go to her husband, the king, and talk unless he summoned her. And yet, here we are told that the king of kings, whose throne is characterized by grace, says, Come and speak freely. Speak openly, and it says this, that we may find mercy and grace to help us in time of need. And mind you, you know when the time of need is for every one of us? Every moment of our lives. So Jesus comes along, bruised reeds and smoldering wicks. If you will, take your Bible, flip to John 21. And we'll hang out there for just the next few moments. While you're turning there, Jesus for three years has been leading and teaching his disciples. He's been exposing them to his power, his compassion. He is constantly telling them he is on his way to Calvary. He will be betrayed, crucified. He'll be buried. He'll be risen again. And yet, the night of they came to arrest him, Mark tells us, they all left him and they fled. They all left. And if you know the story, that very night, the apostle Peter kind of sneaks in closer and he finds a fire where some people are just gathered around and the trial of Jesus is going on. And Peter not only one time, but for three different times, denies that he knows the Lord. Even though at one time he said, I will die for you. Here he is, deny, deny, and deny. And it says in the gospel on the third time, he actually looked and Jesus was looking at him. And, and Peter went away, weeping bitterly. Why? Because he is Epically failed. If anyone has failed, Peter, he had all these commitments. He had all these reassurances that he would never go. And yet he failed that night. Uh, You can imagine he has disappointment and crushed expectations. And yet he feels this guilt and regret. And it is deep in his soul. It is hard down in there. In other words, even because of his own sin, he's a bruised reed. He's a smoldering wick. And honestly, the Scripture should say, and Peter was no more. And Jesus would have been justified. And God would have been justified. In fact, in all of our cases, at any moment, our story could read, and Jim Jackson was no more. But God Almighty, who's full of compassion and who does not throw away bruised reeds and smoldering wicks, brings us grace to be able to repent, confess and repent, and restore us. And that's why I want you, if you will, this is where we'll camp for a minute in John 21. So Jesus, in the chapter before, He's appeared to uh, Thomas, and He is helping him with his smoldering faith. And if you'll look in verse 1 of chapter 21, After this, Jesus revealed Himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and He revealed Himself in this way. And, and you know this, but just mark this again. Maybe in some of y'all's chaos or hectic week or life or whatever's going on, here's the deal. Jesus is always taking initiative towards you and I. Do you realize that? Do you, do you realize that there's not a moment as a child of God that he is not taking initiative towards you? And hear this. Jesus never does random like, oh, that was random. Thank you, Jesus. There's never been a random thing that He's ever done in your life. And yet you might think that's how life is, or that's how things are out of control, or that's how life is going. But yet there's never any random, and it's always intentional. And if you look in verse 2, you'll see who's there. It's Simon Peter and Thomas called the twin. Nathanael, Canaan of Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, the two sons of the disciples were together. Simon Peter said in verse 3, I am going fishing. If you will, just look back up in chapter 20, verse 21. Jesus said to them again. So he's already told them this once. He's told them again. And now here again. Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And yet Peter, after his epic fail, realizes or comes to a conclusion, probably the best that he can do now is just go back to what he's good at. And that's fishing. Uh, That didn't work out. Following a guy for three years, uh, I I can see and look back. I messed up several times, and now I've really made an epic failure of things. And so here's one thing I know I can do. I'm a fisherman. And just think back on Peter in his fishing days. It really wasn't that good, like most fishermen. Really not that good, all right? Really not that good. And so I'm just going to go back to what I'm good at. So you probably know this, but just for a moment... For a Jewish family, the education of their children, especially their son, is very high priority. In fact, when they become about five years old, they enter into what's called the house of the book, where reading and writing were taught using the Torah. And kind of the next step up when they would graduate, when they got a little older, would be to what's called the house of learning, where they would study the rest of the Old Testament books. And the brightest uh, pupils, they would graduate to what's called the house of study, where the vast majority did not pass the entrance exam. And they would just go back to their family business. But then those who made the cut, they went on to higher learning. And the rabbi, after much intense paying attention and teaching, would come to some of the brightest ones of them and say, follow me. And for several years, possibly, they would follow their rabbi until they themselves would become a rabbi and kind of carry on. And so more than likely, Peter and his other friends are those who did not make the cut, and they've just gone back to their father's business. In fact, if you will, take a hard left, keep your finger there, take a hard left, go to Luke, if you will, chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, start in verse 1. You'll remember the beginning of this story because it says on one occasion while the crowds were pressing on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake It's daytime, Uh, you don't fish in the daytime, that's when you don't catch the most fish, and you'll find out as we read on, they fished all night and caught nothing. And so verse 5, and Simon answered, Master, we told all night, we took nothing, but at your word, I'll let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. And they signaled to their partners in the other boats to come over and help them. And they came and they filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at his feet, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid, for now on you will be, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and they followed him. And yet after this epic fail, Peter decides, I'm just going to go back to what I know. I haven't had very many original thoughts in my life, but I wrote one down for you in your notes. It was probably, I think, a New Year's Day. I wrote this in my journal. I never drift to higher ground, but I drift to what's easy. Or in other words, I default to what's easy. You and I, as followers of Christ, will never drift to higher ground. It must be intentional On you and I's part of following Christ. Because if we drift. We'll just drift to what's the easy thing to do. And all of us have done it. We've either done it. We're in it at the moment. Or it might happen in the future of a drifting. And Peter drifted. And he didn't drift to higher ground just drifted to what seemed easy to him. In verse 3, back in John 21. And here's kind of a danger. Hear the danger in verse 3. And they said to him, the other ones that were with Jesus that day, we will go with you. Simon Peter's the leader, and he's leading them away from what Jesus has called them to do. And they're saying, we're just going to go with you. And look at what the rest of the passage says. And they went out, they got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Like, they should have remembered this. Like, they didn't catch anything. They're not doing what Jesus has called them to do. And so, here, mind you, just think of this. Is it just that they're bad fishermen? Or is it, that Jesus did not allow them to catch fish because that is not what Jesus called them to do. In fact, have you ever had Jesus shut the door on you? Thank you. One honest person. But here's the thing, like, shut the door on you when it seemed like a good thing. Like, Man, I know God's lead me in this direction. And it shuts the door. So when I became a believer at about 21 years old, at the very same time, which is just scary as all get out, uh, I'll, I kind of ask Jesus all the time why such a thing. But at about the same time, I sense a call into the ministry, which is more scarier than being saved. And so I thought... I needed to go to um, Bible college. In fact, that's what everyone told me. They told me, who flunked out of high school and doesn't have enough high enough EG to be able to go to college, said, you need to go to Bible college. And I thought, well, that's the call of God on my life. Now, mind you, before I go any further, if you as a believer and God's called you into the ministry and you get opportunity to go to school, Go. But if he never tells you to go and you try to buck against it, it doesn't work out. And so for Sherry and I newly married, and I'm just now learning to read, because I didn't read until I was 21 years old. And I'm about 23 years old, and a guy who can't read, I'm just starting to learn to read, I'm going to go to Bible college. Well, there was one that was suggested to me in Dallas, Texas, and I thought, well, i got to go there. And I worked hard, 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 and nothing went well. Nothing went smooth. And I got Sherry. I got her moved down there. She had a job. I'm still in Edmond. I'm trying to get it where I can get moved down there. And nothing, and mind you, I'm not asking God if this is what I should do. This is what I've been told I should do. And I'm I, like nothing's working out. I, you would think I would get it but I'm not getting it. And so I determine on a particular Saturday, I am loading up my stuff, I am driving to Dallas, I am going to do this, and I get up Saturday morning and the news says the Highway Patrol has closed I-35 from Oklahoma City to Dallas, Texas. And God shut down the highway, and millions of people were affected by it. For God to say, no. And I'm telling you, the shut door was disheartening. I thought, well, what a fail. I'll just go back to what I know. And I knew how to weld. And I thought, I'll just go back to welding. I'll just go back to that. So here's the deal. You you might have had a door shut. And here, it doesn't say in the Bible, you know, when God shuts a door, open a window. Where's that at? Second hesitations, you know, like, where's that in the Bible? There's no any of that. But he shut the door and he got my attention. In verse 4, just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And that's kind of misleading because here's what it actually says. Hey, boys, you don't have any fish, do you? Now, if you're a fisherman, that really comes across hard, doesn't it? Like, oh, I see all your gear and stuff, but I see you have no fish. You have no fish? And they answered, No. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. They cast it, and they're not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, It's the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he had stripped for work and he threw himself into the sea. It just reminds you, remember, Jesus is walking in the water and they're all afraid. And Jesus says, hey, it's me. And what did uh, Peter say? Hey, if it's you, let me come out and walk. And man, he just jumped out there. And then what happened? He started sinking. And there's only one fill in the blank on your notes. And it's this. Peter often overestimated his commitment, and he underestimated his weaknesses. He often, I often, you often overestimate our commitment to the Lord. I'm I'm telling you, he he already knows it. He already knows the degree of your commitment, and yet he would overestimate it. Man, I'll never leave you. I'll die with you. And then a few hours later, he denies him three times. And he underestimated his weakness. In verse 8, The other disciples came in the boat dragging the net full of fish when they were not far from the land but about a hundred yards off. And when they got on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. And here's probably one of my most favorite pictures, because for an outdoorsman, one of the most inviting gestures, if you've been out late in the woods or on a hike, or you've been hunting, and now it's after dark, and you're coming in towards camp, and someone's already there, and they've got a fire burning, what a inviting gesture. Some of you just think of I'll stink and uh, whatever, but I'm telling you, what a inviting gesture. Because to me, this reminds me of, of this. A campfire to them that day would be like for me when I was younger, and my parents would leave the porch light on you know what I'm talking about? Like when you were younger and you were out, and when you came home, hopefully your parents left a porch light on, like I'm expecting you, here's the front door, we expect you to be in, or like you're welcome here, kind of a thing. Uh, my parents would leave the porch light on for my sister and I when we'd both be out, and come home. My sister is older than me, and when um, she became in her late teens, she met a young man, a non-believer, started dating him, and it didn't take long, and uh, she left home with this guy. And uh, it broke our hearts. I was just turning 16, and, and um she was a, one of my best friends, my only sister, and she left. But probably more than anybody, it broke my mom's heart. And I didn't catch on for a while. But I noticed my parents left the front porch light on for years for my sister. It wasn't necessarily for me. I knew I was coming home. In fact, my dad would get me up early growing up, and I hardly was ever after, out after dark. So I really didn't need the porch light. But my sister, she would. And so my parents, for years, left the porch light on. I can still remember we were sitting in our living room. My mom, dad, and myself, and our phone rang. And for some of you, this will be, like, interesting fact. Our phone hung on the wall and had a cord that went to this receiver, and it had a dial, one, two, three, and you actually dialed it. It was like the craziest thing you've ever seen. Anyway, ancient, ancient. And the phone rang, and my dad went and answered it, and I'm across the living room, and I can hear my sister's voice on the other, And it didn't take long, and my dad said, we'll be there. He hung it up, and he said, load up. And mind you, I've just started driving, it's late, it is dark 30 when we leave, and we drive through Kansas, which really is the best time to drive through Kansas, is it not? (laughs) I just had to put that in there because some of you Kansas people love it, so forgive me for offending you, but we drove through Kansas, and we went and picked up my sister, and we drove all the way back home. Sun's coming up when we get home. And my sister and my family, but especially my, my mother and my sister reconciled. And my sister lived with my parents. She became legally blind. And then at age 38, she died of a disease that she was born with in the home. That she grew up in. And I can remember when I came to our house, because Sherry and I were married by now, and, and I got the call in the middle of the night, and I got there and the first thing I remember my mother saying is Sis, that's what she'd call my sister, sis was my best friend. They had reconciled. My parents had left the front porch light on. My sister knew somehow she could come home. I want to just read you a couple verses. Acts chapter 3 says this, Repent, therefore, turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Or Romans 2 says, Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Back in John 21, in verse 10, Jesus said to them, "'Bring some of the fish that you have just caught.' So Simon Peter went aboard, and he hauled the net ashore full of large fish, in fact, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, "'Come and have breakfast.' Now none of the disciples dared ask him, "'Who are you?' They knew it was the Lord. And Jesus took the bread." And he gave it to them, and so with the fish. Just think about it. Here is the risen Lord. They are the turntail followers of Christ, and he, in turn, serves them. And if you're a child of God, I, I know you realize this, but there's not a moment of your life that Jesus is not serving you. You're breathing right now. You're here right now. You're being able to listen right now all because Jesus is allowing it. And he's serving you and I. For three years, Jesus had cared for them. You remember at the feeding of the 5,000? Jesus made sure that after everyone had eaten and was filled, he made sure that what? Twelve baskets full were left over for every one of his followers. I I think the whole miracle of feeding thousands of people was not necessarily meant for all the people. It was meant for his twelve disciples realizing, I take care of you. Even in the midst of, like, millions of people in the world. Billions, in fact. And maybe you think, like, man, God's forgotten me, and yet he cares for every need. On the night of the Last Supper, it is Jesus who gets up and washes their feet. And mind you, the grandest and greatest act of service is when Jesus went to the cross. And so here, the story is coming to its end. In verse 14, it says, This was now the third time that Jesus revealed to his disciples after he was raised from the dead And when we had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon, and many of you have heard this preached over the years, and you know it better than I do. Hear it just afresh again. Jesus says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And again, you know this, you've heard it. But do you agape, do you love me with the highest form of love? He says, do you love me with the highest form of love more than these, like more than the fish and the boats and your way of life? Do you love me? Peter said, yes, Lord, you know that I love phileo, I a lesser, a flawed love than feed my sheep. And here's the thing. It, this passage doesn't say it. It doesn't say if there was a pause or if Jesus just went right into the second and then the third one. But here's something that does stand out to me. Jesus or Peter has no reply. Maybe Jesus just went quickly to the second one, or I kind of think he let it sink in a minute, and Peter had no reply. Nothing to come to say. Like most of the time when Peter, he just had to say something. Remember at the transfiguration? He didn't know what to say, so he said something. And yet Peter has nothing to say. In verse 16, and said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Agape? He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. A flawed love. He said to him, tend my sheep. He just said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved. Because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you with an imperfect, flawed love. And Jesus said, Feed my sheep. Now, before we go any further, I just want you to think this for a moment. Epic fail. A follower of Jesus who has failed Jesus right up there, not quite like Judas, but has failed Jesus epically. He went back on his commitment. He failed epically. So he's got this incredible failure. He's got this incredible grief and regret in his life. And if a person, Peter, along with any of us in this room, allow... Failure, hurt, grief, regret define you, and that become your identity, you will be stuck in it, and it's miserable. Hear me. It is not your identity. Does that make sense? Like, you can be hurt by others. You can get hurt in life. Grief comes. Hurt and pain and regret come. But as a child of God, that is not who you are. But if you believe that is who you are, you will stay stuck in that. And that's why I think, probably more than anything, that Jesus continues to kind of dig to the root of the failure of Peter's life is realizing, Peter, this is not who you are. Because after this, he says, Hey Peter, you're gonna die as a martyr. You're going to keep going. In fact, if you read the New Testament, 1st and 2nd Peter are some of the greatest letters in the Bible from a guy who Jesus restored. And then he writes to people who are suffering like people have never suffered before from the hands of Nero. And so here the spirit of God uses Peter to write 1st and 2nd Peter to encourage people who are being killed every day to stick with it because God is faithful. And so Peter didn't like think that was him anymore. He realized that Jesus was restoring him. But do you know what part of the restoring, what has to happen? See, when you and I sin, whenever we fail God, we are always stepping down. When we fail and we don't confess and repent, you just keep stepping down. You never drift to higher ground. And repentance is, and all of us know this, right? Repentance is what? Turning around. But is it just turning around and staying here? No, repentance is turning around and stepping up to your God-given responsibility, to the obedience that the Scripture clearly tells you and I to do. And it was obvious that Peter not only repented, but he did what? In his repentance, he stepped up. To what he had been called to. To his God-given responsibility. And hear me, whenever I fail, I am not only sinning against God, but I am saying to God, whatever God-given responsibility he has given to me, it's not for me. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do my own thing. And repentance is, I turn from that and I step back up to what God has for me. In fact, if you will, there's a quote by J.I. Packer, and it says this Repentance means turning from as much as you know of your sin to give as much as you know of yourself to as much as you know of your God. And as our knowledge grows at these three points, so our practice of repentance has to be enlarged. In other words, as a believer, repentance is not a one-time thing. Repentance is, honestly, for a believer, a way of life. As you and I grow to know ourself and our sin of God and who He is, our practice of repentance gets deeper and deeper. I have one last quote, if you will look at it, and then, Jonathan, you can come. It is from a book that I consider an incredible book on marriage called Sacred Marriage by Gary Thomas. In it, here's this quote. Behind virtually every case of marital dissatisfaction lies unrepented sin. Couples don't fall out of love so much as they fall out of repentance. Make sense? It seems like falling out of love But the deal is a lack of a continual, repentant heart. It goes on to say, Sin, wrong attitudes, personal failures that are not dealt with, slowly erode, drift the relationship, assaulting and eventually erasing the once lofty promises made in the throes of an easier. Remember, you never drift to higher ground, but you drift to what's just easy. Easier and less polluted passion. It's not necessarily your love for God is getting less. It's just that have fallen out of confessing, agreeing with God, and repenting, turning, and stepping back up. So would you close your eyes? Bow your head for a moment. Could I encourage you one last time? If you have... broken God's promises, you know you've sinned, you sense this incredible grief or regret or whatever situation, first of all, you must know as a child of God, that is not your identity. You are a child of God who God will not cast away a bruised reed or snuff out a smoldering wick. But longs because of His goodness that you see Him. And that because of the goodness of God, you would see it and you would confess. You would agree with God this. And I'm not, I don't know how you could say a heinous sin or a little sin. There's no such thing. Sin is sin in God's eye if it's just a failure to take your God-given responsibilities and to confess, to agree with God that is wrong, and then to repent, to change your mind, to turn from it, but not just turn from it, you must step back up to what you know God has called you to do. Repent, because what did the scripture say? That times of refreshing would come from the presence of God. And Father, I pray today your people, if they find themselves in this situation, or if in the future Then you have already said to them through this message: They must confess and repent. Find refreshing to be restored back with you. And pray today, your people, more than anyone myself, search our hearts. Where have we stepped down, or began to drift, or not taken what you have? called or you said in your word serious enough to step up and do and we would confess and repent of that because we turn to a merciful God who will in no way cast out a bruised reed or flick away a smoldering wick I pray today whatever we find ourselves today God May you find our love, even though it is imperfect. It still is a love that is going towards you. And you would continue to grow us. In our devotion, love, service to you. Help us to not overestimate it. Help us not to underestimate our weakness. Help us realize we must need you for every waking moment of our day. And thank you for being there. Thank you, even as we sing, the reminders of how gracious you are to us. May our praise to you be as real as it possibly can in these moments. We ask in your name.